0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Robert Casanello and his students at the University of Central Florida create a digital museum with Orlando's Historically Black Jones High School.
1: I could actually work with Jones High on um, a history exhibit online, a digital history exhibit, and kind of think about the problems, the philosophies, and the theories that might be involved in curating that in an online environment.
0: We'll discuss United States
2: presidents in Florida. There were several presidents who at least visited Florida, and there were several men who had visited Florida or were shaped by the state of Florida long before they even entered the White House. And we'll visit Graham Parsons Dairy Down in Winter
0: Haven. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. (laughs) That's the acclaimed Jones High School marching band performing in 2016. The historically black Jones High School can trace its roots to the late 1800s in Orlando's Paramore community. As Orlando developed in the late 19th century, a thriving African-American community was established on the west side of Division Street, while the predominantly white downtown area arose east of Division Street. Robert Casanello is an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida. He says that Jones High School was created out of a new policy toward black education in Florida.
1: After the Civil War in Florida and throughout the South, African Americans demanded of their representatives, of their local leaders, of their state, a system of public education because they believed that their freedom was tied to being um, an educated, informed citizen and voter. And when in 1868, African-American men were enfranchised and African-Americans were uh, granted citizenship with the 14th Amendment, they lobbied the Constitutional Convention of 1868 in Florida to create this public education system for both white and black students. And this is sort of where we get not only a public education system, but also a black public education system because even though the 1868 Florida Constitution was much more egalitarian than any other government Florida had seen up to that point in time, in practice, schools were mostly segregated during Reconstruction. And with the 1885 Constitution that overturns the 1868 Constitution, lawmakers in Tallahassee then institute a system of separate education, that we've come to know as the Jim Crow system of um, segregation. And so under that system is when Orlando begins a black public school, and they called it the Orlando Colored School. And it's founded in the mid to late 1880s, and it eventually evolves into what becomes Jones High School.
0: Jones High School began as a colored school for African American students only, but evolved over time with changes in state and federal laws.
1: In the 1880s and 1890s, the Orlando Colored School, of course, was small. It was probably like a a one-room schoolhouse from what we've been able to tell from records. And it would have only been in session for a few months because throughout the South, black schools were always in session shorter than white schools because uh, lawmakers and um, plantation owners wanted to make sure that um, African Americans were free to work the fields, or work as labor um, throughout most of the year. So African-Americans didn't go to to school the same length of time that white schools did and also didn't have the same grades. Like an African-American education during that time in the 1880s, 1890s, and even the turn of the century only went up to maybe sixth grade or eighth grade in the case of um, Jones High. And back then in the 1890s, it was called Johnson Academy after uh, Lyman, Johnson, who was one of the early principals. And in 1921, uh, the principal of Johnson Academy at the time, he and his family donated land and uh, their house for a permanent place for what would become Jones High School. And of course, it's named after L.C. Jones, who was the principal at the time and the person whose family donated the land.
0: The Jones High School Historical Society operates a museum that until recently was only a physical space. Robert Casanello and his students at the University of Central Florida have been working with the Historical Society to create a digital exhibit about Jones High School.
1: One of the interesting things for me in this project and working with the Jones High Historical Society and their museum is that their museum existed in a 100% physical space. They had no web presence. They had no Facebook, no social media, nothing like that. And I found that actually intriguing in some way because it gave me a chance to say, well, what does it mean to curate in a digital environment? And so I could actually work with Jones High on um, a history exhibit online, a digital history exhibit, and kind of think about the problems, the philosophies, and the theories that might be involved in curating that in an online environment. So for me, That was the the intellectual part of it. Now, there also was a part of it in that uh, the Jones High Historical Society had done tremendous work over the years preserving, recording, documenting, and displaying their own history in ways that I thought, you know, was superior to what I could do as a professional historian. And so it sort of excited me to take those materials people could see in the museum, and find a way that people can engage those very same materials online.
0: While the Jones High School Historical Society provided a lot of great material for the online exhibit, Robert Casanello and his students also did original research to develop new material.
1: We had to curate new material uh, for the exhibit because the, the folks with the Jones High School Historical Society were teachers, students, alumni from the 1940s and 1950s onward. There really wasn't too many people around at that time when they were founded in 1997 that would have memories of the 1910s and 20s. And what we had to do was sort of reconstruct as much as we could the history of Jones High before 1950 because we felt the history that was in their memory And the history that they were eyewitnesses to was fantastic. They had done a really great job in preserving that, interpreting that, and really um, provided us all of the raw material. But there was very little. It was very spotty before 1950. And so my students and I really kind of committed to say, okay, what can we do before 1950 that it would at least be equal to or create some sort of chronological equilibrium to the great material after 1950? And so we went— into archives, went to local records, went to newspapers.com, and we did as much research as we could to fill out that history as best we could. And I'm sure it's lacking in comparison, but it's the best that we can do with the materials that we had.
0: Casanello says that in the mid-20th century, there was a drastic difference between black and white schools in Florida and throughout the South.
1: Prior to 1950, state and local white leaders were really committed to enshrining and ensuring that black public school students had an obvious and in-your-face unequal education. And so some of the things that black students would uh, witness, not only black students, but black teachers and administrators, is less funding than white schools, some, somewhere hovering around 40% um, before the 1940s as well as um, the school year being shortened to just maybe um, three or four months less than what the white schools were were in during the entire school year. African-Americans, mathematics, algebra, things like this, they just didn't want black students learning before the 1940s because they felt African-Americans were only capable of getting manual jobs and they weren't going to need these kinds of skills, and so these opportunities weren't afforded to them. And, of course, it would impact the students who would want to go on to college after going to their local um, public schools. So for an African-American student who was college-bound in the state of Florida, their parents would have had to pay or find some way to get some kind of tutoring so that they would have the skill set to be able to go to college after graduation.
0: Despite the neglect and institutional undermining of black schools by the state of Florida, Jones High School thrived and became a central part of the African American community in Orlando.
1: We have to keep in mind that even though local white education leaders were demanding and expecting that black schools would teach uh, agricultural, industrial, or domestic arts education, that doesn't mean that they did. And there is evidence now, people have uncovered the fact that what public schools and even black colleges and universities did was secretly teach mathematics, secretly teach Latin, secretly teach literature out of the eyes of white education leaders. So these things were being done, and and African-American parents and teachers, administrators knew the value of these things. It created such an atmosphere that a school like Jones High School became this nucleus or center of the African-American community in Orlando. So during the daytime, African-American students would come and they would learn these subjects. And in the evening and on the weekends, Jones High would be this hub of the community and they would um, organize parades. They would organize speakers coming through. They would organize entertainment, a lot of musical acts. And this is like before the Chitlin Circuit that so many people hear about in Orlando. And, you know, Before that was really kind of um, set, in the 1910s um, and 20s, there were vaudeville, African-American vaudeville acts and musicians and singers that would come through, and they would perform at the Jones High School Auditorium. In
0: 1954, the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision called for the desegregation of public schools with all deliberate speed. For Orlando, that meant the early 1970s. While attempts were made to integrate Jones High School, today it remains predominantly African-American.
1: I don't think desegregation had a positive impact on Jones High. And, you know, we could, we could sit here and, and acknowledge the problem of racial segregation, and it was a real problem. But Jones High today is just just as segregated, if not more segregated, than it was in the 1940s and 1950s. In fact, it's more segregated if you think of the student population coming from all, not only from a similar racial and ethnic background, but also from a similar socioeconomic background.
0: Robert Casanello's work with the Jones High School Historical Society began with a documentary film called Marching Forward about the legendary Jones High School Marching Band.
1: I teach a historical documentary course with a film professor at the University of Central Florida named Lisa Mills. And her and I have collaborated all together on four films. And this last film we've collaborated with a group of students is Marching Forward. And it's about the 1964 Jones High School band who went to the New York City World's Fair to represent the city of Orlando, which was sort of unprecedented in 1964. And It's sort of interesting because when we started work on pre-production on this fourth film, we really didn't have a topic. We had the desire to do something on Orlando and had the desire to do something on African-Americans in Orlando, but we really did not have a topic. And it wasn't until I heard people talk about this that I went back to Lisa and I said, Lisa, there's something in this 1964 World's Fair thing that we really need to explore. And that became the impetus for the project. And the way we went from the film to this digital exhibit and website with the Historical Society was because the Historical Society was working with us to get interviews of alumni, to get materials to use, photos, to interview Chief Wilson, who is the central character of the film. And they had said to us, we hope that this doesn't end with the film. We hope you're able to contribute more. And I was in the position that I knew in a year I'd be teaching these series of classes on history museums and museum studies. And I said, well, I'll have these students, and they'll need to work in a museum. And there's this Jones High Museum, and they have nothing on the Internet. And I thought, all of this just makes sense to me. So over the course of a year with a series of classes, I kind of funneled my students to work with them to work on the website and produce this um, online digital exhibit for them that promotes their history. And so it it really was kind of both these projects working uh, side by side that created the space for us to kind of create this digital exhibit.
0: Robert Casanello is an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida and a longtime contributor to this program. To see the digital exhibit we've been discussing, go to joneshighschoolhistoricalsociety.org. The documentary, Marching Forward, will be shown at upcoming film festivals and on PBS television stations. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like the Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium, find great books on Florida history and culture, and watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers. That's myfloridahistory.org.
3: Dear Mr. President Come take, a walk with me. Come take a walk with me Let's pretend we're just two people and you're not better than me I'd like to ask you some questions if we can speak honestly
0: Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the current occupant of the White House, spends much of his time in Florida. Many other U.S. presidents have spent a lot
2: of time here as well. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Even going back into the 19th century, there were several presidents who at least visited Florida, and there were several men who had visited Florida or were shaped by the state of Florida long before they even entered the White House, going all the way back to Andrew Jackson. In fact, Andrew Jackson was the first provisional, and technically he was a transitional uh, military governor of Florida when the Spanish handed over Florida to the U.S. in 1821. He briefly served here for a few months, left Florida, and I don't think ever came back. But he uh, was involved early on with the First Seminole War, invaded West Florida, occupied Pensacola, 1817, 1818. And then moving forward about a decade later during the Second Seminole War, Zachary Taylor, who was a military general, spent quite a bit of time here in Florida. In fact, in 1837, 1838. He became commander of all troops in Florida during the Second Seminole War. He went on to enter the White House less than a decade later. And then moving forward after the Civil War in 1883, Chester Arthur uh, was the first sitting president to actually visit Florida. It was an official visit. There were a few meetings, but very little kind of official business done in Florida. He wasn't acting, you know, as president. It was really kind of a a figurehead tour. He came through the state. But Arthur was an avid fisherman, and he wanted to visit South Central Florida, and he fished in uh, what is now Disney property on uh, Reedy Creek. He was fishing in Reedy Creek in 1883. Later in 1888, Grover Cleveland spent some time in central Florida, visited St. Augustine, and, and traveled actually on a, on a private yacht uh, along the intercoastal waterway system down through uh, east-central Florida. Spent quite a bit of time here. He was also involved in some outdoor activities. And then in 1898, during the Spanish-American War, the person who would become, soon become president, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, was here with his Rough Riders, spent time in Tampa, and then disembarked for Cuba uh, from Tampa. So he came through Florida, and that kind of brought us into the 20th century.
0: Now, the president who might have spent the most time in Florida actually working is Harry S. Truman. He spent so much time in Key West that his residence there is called the Little White House.
2: Yeah, that's right. The uh, the Truman Little White House. If you visit it today, it's difficult to imagine that a, a sitting U.S. president was here. It um, kind of looks like just a, a regular, you know, two-story home. And even the, the furniture inside is not that terribly elaborate or decorated. But, but you're right, Truman did a lot of actual official work here. He spent many, many days here working at a very small desk, sending correspondence all over the world, dealing with international issues and national crises and things like that. But as you said, he was one of the few presidents who really did... See serious work here in Florida. A lot of presidents prior to that time period sort of used the state as a vacation point or, or really getting into the 20th century as a campaign stop. Now, remember, as uh, Florida's population began to grow in the 20th century, their electoral significance began to grow as well. So presidents who were uh, seeking re-election or, or initial election, they had to start visiting this kind of up-and-coming state into the 20th century. And this became clear in the 1920s. After the end of the First World War, we had kind of a, a wave of migration to the state. Presidents like Harding and, and uh, Calvin Coolidge were, were here. In fact, Coolidge visited Bach Tower, dedicated Bach Tower in 1929. And we're actually looking at a document. This is a brochure from the dedication ceremony that here lists uh, President and Mrs. Coolidge visiting Bach Tower in central Florida to to dedicate that monument. And Harding was here in the early 1920s, but he was here really more on kind of a pleasure cruise. This is uh, shortly after he uh, won the election. He kind of came to Florida on a victory tour. But we're also looking at here, I grabbed a few photographs from the collection. This is from a private scrapbook from a family that lived in East Central Florida in Titusville. And these photos were taken in 1936 when FDR actually visited Florida. Now, he was traveling on, again, kind of a a ceremonial tour. He visited Orlando. But this illustrates uh, what it meant for the population of Florida, especially the rural population of Florida, who came out to visit a, a sitting U.S. president. This is 1936. You can see it's a little bit difficult, but it was taken from, you know, from the crowd, probably a small camera. And this is right in the middle of the Depression. People came out, they put on their Sunday best. And they came to see a president, this, this magnanimous figure. They, they wanted to visit these folks and kind of see them live in person. So this is a great example of how these visits really affected kind of the poor, the middle, and, and the poorer classes of Florida who were, you know, living along the dirt, dusty dirt roads of Florida. And here comes a sitting U.S. president from Washington, D.C., kind of a tangible evidence, at least, of the federal government here in your backyard.
0: Now, Richard Nixon, John F. Kennedy, and George Bush Sr. all had residences in Florida. And although many presidents have spent a lot of time in Florida, we've never had a president from Florida, right?
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. In fact, the closest that a Floridian has gotten to the White House was a gentleman named Alan Boyd, Alan S. Boyd. And he was the first Secretary of Transportation under Lyndon Johnson in uh, in the 1960s. And that's the highest cabinet position that a native born Floridian has uh, attained up to this point. But you never know. Florida is now one of the largest states in the Union. There are a lot of young, up and coming politicians, a lot of politicians who have uh, certainly uh, ran for office who were uh, from Florida. And, and we never know what the, what the future might hold. That's right. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you.
0: Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO. If you'd like to see some of the items we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org.
3: Dear Mr. President, You'd never take a walk with me
0: This is Florida Frontiers. Florida musician Graham Parsons was very influential helping to create country rock. The Winter Haven venue where he got his start, Dairy Down, is once again an intimate performance venue. Holly Baker is FHS Public History Coordinator and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. ¶¶
2: You. Mm-hmm.
3: Graham Parsons, born in Winter Haven, Florida in 1946, is often called the father of the country rock genre. Parsons died young, at the age of 26, but more than 40 years after his death, he continues to influence popular music. Bob Keeling, author of Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock, talked with me about the musical legacy of Graham Parsons.
4: Graham, you know, he revered people like Merle Haggard and George Jones. He was evangelical. About country music and I think people use the wrong measuring stick to look at his legacy and that is commercial success he just didn't have much but it was like he threw that pebble in the pond and the ripples have been so rich and rewarding and I think that's one of the enduring things about Graham's career is it's unfinished and people feel this need to help spread the gospel of Graham because he didn't get a chance to do it himself he was just getting started People know that he was the guy that paved the way, and he's the guy that took out the long machete and cut through the wilderness of music and forged that path.
3: Graham Parsons' legacy lives on through the historic Dairy Down music venue in Winter Haven, Florida. The Dairy Down was established in 1964 by Graham Parsons and his stepfather, Bob Parsons. The building originally served as a performance venue for Graham Parsons and his band, The Shilohs, along with other young Polk County musicians like Bobby Braddock, Jim Carlton, and Jim Stafford. The significance of the Dairy Down was largely forgotten until Bob Keeling's 2012 book about Graham Parsons revived memories about the building and its role in the local folk and rock music scene. While researching for his book, Bob Keeling noticed that the Dairy Down building, located in downtown Winter Haven, was abandoned and in danger of demolition. Bob Keeling.
4: Back when I was researching this book, I, I had heard about this place, and uh, I was invited to present my book at the library, which is just up the street in 2013, and here I am beating the drum, saying, you should save this place, and, you know, this is a direct lineage to Graham. and I'll be damned if the town didn't get together and do just that. And the company that owned this building, the 610 company down in Winter Haven, the president of the company, told me that he was flying on an airplane, reading the book, Read the address of this place and goes, Oh my God, we own this building. Donated it. Everybody got together, in kind contributions, and now it is an historic listening room where Graham's burrito brother, Chris Hillman, Jim Lauderdale, you know, we, we've had a roster of wonderfully influential artists play this special, beautiful, spiritual little place in honor of Graham. And can I dare say, this is the legacy that the true fans want to see about the music. This is coming back home to a Southern legacy.
3: Thanks to the efforts of Bob Keeling, Main Street Winter Haven, Inc., and others in the Winter Haven community, Grand Parsons Dairy Down has been restored, and the building once again serves as a venue and listening room, as it was originally intended. Grand Parsons Dairy Down received a historic marker from the Florida Department of Historic Resources in 2015. To learn more about Grand Parsons Dairy Down in Winter Haven, Florida, visit www.gpdairydown.com. That's G-P-D-E-R-R-Y-D-O-W-N.com. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.